All right, yeah, amazingly, we have no de te technical difficulties this afternoon. There's nothing that I've seen. Anyway, uh, welcome, grateful for our tech staff who worked this stuff out for us. We're in Revelation chapter 10, part three, but uh, Revelation chapter 10, part one and two were only one verse where we talked all about how I believe that that one verse is describing Jesus, the, the mighty angel coming down, and I gave all the reasons, but we're going to get into that chapter. Today's interesting. We, we learn a lot of stuff, I think, from it, and uh, at least uh, open up some, uh, some thoughts. So let's pray. Uh, welcome you who are here and those of you who watch and tune in at home, and uh, we'll sing the word of God, set to music, come back, and pick up where we left off. Father, God... We, we seek you in, in spirit and in truth. We long for your uh, constant presence and for us to be aware enough to know you're there in all things. We know you love us and are aware of us, and we just pray that uh, we will move forward uh, in spirit and in truth and that we will be equipped to uh, face this life and the difficulties that come with it and the joys, humbly and, and in your name. And we uh, pray that you open up your word to us, especially this book of Revelation, which can be so difficult, and help us to learn something that uh, you want us to know relative to it. Forgive the errors I will certainly make, and uh, let them be forgotten, but let your spirit, which teaches us all things, move us forward. We praise you uh, for all things, and know you are cognizant of everything that occurs. And... Um, want to pause just collectively today as, as a group of believers to thank you when we so often forget to thank you for life. So be with us now as we uh, listen to your word and sing along if we want. In Jesus' name, amen.
For there is no difference for us. 
redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. Now faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things Okay, let's, uh, we covered the first verse of chapter 10, uh, and I made the argument, spent the whole time making the argument uh, that this mighty angel, this mighty angelos, mighty messenger was Jesus. Let's read on, and he had in his hand a little book, verse 2, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. 
And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, says John, and I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and all the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are that are therein that there should be time no longer but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets I think this uh, chapter up to this point is going to be easier to explain than most of the things that we have covered uh, in these last few chapters of Revelation. So go back to verse 2. Though we covered much of it already as to what this little book was, it says, And he had in his hand, this mighty angel, a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Now, we've discussed that the, the symbolism of Revelation, the sea is represented as, uh, the Gentiles are represented as the sea, and the nation of Israel is represented as the land. And that's a consistent picture or image that we have through the book of Revelation. From this description, having this little book, it's the reason for his appearing, it seems he's come with something he's not he's not just putting his feet on those two places he uh, is going to do something important with it or something that symbolizes something that is important the fact that he sets his right put foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth with this little book in his hand is highly symbolic of the fact that the message in his hand contained in the little book which seems to be saying this is from God, This because he comes from heaven, the mighty angel, and he has this little book in his hand. So a message from God are the words of God, and they are now for all peoples, I would suggest. Those who are in the sea, those who are on the land, the Gentiles and the Jews. This is going to play into what it says in verse 7. So there's going to be some consistency here today for once in our message. Interestingly, the Greek word here translated book is biblarideon. Biblarideon, and it's the only time it's ever used in the entire Bible. I say that, it's used one more time, but it's in this chapter in, in verses 8, uh, verse 8 and 9. So, uh, biblarideon does not mean what this biblios means. So biblios is all through the Bible, and it means uh, a book. Biblion means uh, a book or books or a bill of divorcement, biblion. But biblioirideon, biblioirideon, uh, is used to describe something very different. What is it used to describe? A very small scroll. It doesn't use micron biblios, which be, would be very small, or it doesn't use macro uh, biblios, which would be, or, or uh, magnum biblios. It uses biblioirideon and a small open scroll, almost like a single piece of paper, okay? So we have to assume that this is very different 
from the book that was we saw handed to him that was on the throne in Revelation chapter 5 uh, that had the seven seals. This is different. Now, remember that Revelation is illustrating for us the fact that an entire kingdom, this is, the, the, it is being revealed. What is going to take place, this entire kingdom, and one that is spiritual and that will dwell in the hearts of people spiritually. Some people believe it's an actual kingdom. Kingdom now, Christians are, are preparing the earth for this kingdom physically to manifest itself. The LDS Church was founded on uh, millennial expectations of Jesus to return and establish a material kingdom here upon the earth. But I would suggest that what we are reading here is God's message or revelation of what the, the kingdom is going to look like. And just like Jesus said when he walked the earth, the kingdom of God is within you. I believe that that kingdom is entirely spiritual, and that's what we're seeing. And so... Perhaps this Bibliiridion is the book that the king will have when he takes his throne. That he comes and he puts his foot in the sea, he puts his foot on the land, and he has in his hand the rules of this kingdom, so to speak. But it's only one page. Now remember that. Don't lose that. We know from 2 Kings 11.12 and 2 Chronicles 23.11 that in, in the Jews' lives, in the Hebrew world, that when kings were crowned, the book of the law was placed in their hands. Uh, law of God. This was uh, the Pentateuch, uh, the uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were pl it was placed in a king's hand, literally, and you can look that up at 2 Kings 11, 12, and the other one. But, and this is also done to suggest that that king is going to now reign and observe the laws that are placed in their hand when they reign over the earth. And their administration would be one that is ruled by intelligence of this law and uprightness of this law. Even today, I think, uh, it often, a Bible is given to monarch, uh, like in England, when they are crowned, suggesting the same thing. This Bible is delivered, and it, it's borrowed from the Old Testament. So when Jesus taught that all the law and the prophets hung on the two great commandments um, to love God and to love neighbor as self, perhaps um, this was the paper in his hand. Instead of having 66 scrolls in his hand or uh, uh, open scrolls or a big book, he only has a small open scroll. This, this person who has his foot on land and sea. Take additional notice that we do not see this messenger, Jesus, coming with a sword in his hand now at this chapter. Now remember, this chapter 10 is inserted between the end of the Trump 6 and Trump 7. It's like a, a separate little vision that John is having, and it's telling us something that is coming in the future or possibly something that has happened. I think it's telling uh, John this is coming later on after or during the, the revelation of the seventh trump. So it's kind of inserted here, but he's not carrying scales for justice or a sword to show warfare, uh, just a little open scroll. 
and in my estimation this book was to be the emblem of the new kingdom upon which hangs all the law and the prophets now i could be wrong on that there's a thousand interpretations to yesterday but to me i don't understand why the book wasn't bigger if it was the whole bible i don't understand uh, why it wasn't 66 scrolls or whatever the fact that it was open to is interesting uh a new gamnanon not sealed or something that used to be sealed but is now open tells us that when presented to the world of jews and gentiles it would have application he has come down he's placed his foot on both nations gentile jew and he has the law in his hand for both um that's how i would see it he have to also note that this was there was something written on that scroll okay in my estimation, the contents of this single vision is the best evidence in Scripture. Let me say this again. What, we're, what we just read, what we're reading about here in chapter 10, is the best evidence in the New Testament that the Word of God has application to the whole world today. And what I mean by that is we cannot find anywhere in the New Testament where Paul says, and I write these, there's an exception to this, but most of the letters written in the new testament are this is to the church at corinth this is to the church at ephesus this is to the church at, at, at rome and, and one two places he says this is to the church at corinth and to those who believe on christ jesus so we have two or three places in the entire new testament where what was being written actually could have application to people after that because the writer adds and to those who believe on christ jesus okay so but here we have a vision that john sees of this mighty angel coming down and he has a little book in his hand that's open and he steps on both the gentiles and the jews that is the best indication that something written from heaven is for the whole world so in the bible you can mark that if you want we might have the best evidence that the bible would be for people beyond the new testament or early church period uh now one caveat to that though if it was the whole Bible word for word and all the books in that manual are to serve all nations, then you would think that it would be bigger. And you would think that uh, John would say, and I saw the mighty angel come and he had a large book in his hand, maybe more specifically, and he had a large book divided into sections, but speaking of both the old and the new or he had 66 books. Imagine what Christians would say if in this vision, uh, the mighty one came down and had 66 scrolls in his arms. Then we would have definitive evidence that the Bible is, uh, uh, as a whole, is for all generations, all lands from that point forward. But it's not, it's just almost like a single page. That's really important. John sees a vision where the messenger standing on has an open, small book, and the very word to describe it is Greek uh, that's never used anywhere else. So the message would be so clear to all of us right if he came and had 66 books or the Bible and I saw a large, but that's not what we're getting. And so that tells us something about the future and what will govern the body where the king who is putting his hand on both land and sea is over i think um, nevertheless the bible commentators they use this passage these passages in revelation 10 to suggest that this is a picture for the reformation that 
the Bible was closed off to the world until the Reformational Fathers got involved in 1530 with Erasmus and Luther. And that when they read this, they think this is a reference to the open book being available to the world. That's how the interpretation typically goes. The suggestion is that um, prior to that, from especially from 1000 AD to 1530, 530 or so years, the book was closed because of the Catholics didn't let it out. Uh, but it was worse than that. I did a little uh, research as I uh, prepared for this. There seems, even the Catholics, uh, in the Catholic Church, if you want to call it, going back, way back, even if you want to start calling Catholicism beginnings in Constantine's time at 350, uh, beyond that time, the Catholic Church, even the people in it, they were very ignorant of the Bible. Um, according to some scholars, many Catholics were unable to read even their priests, and few had access to this Bible. And those who did have access to it still drew their doctrine from what the men prior to them and during their time were teaching. One scholar named Hallam in his book, Middle Ages, page 241, he says, and this is a quote, of this prevailing ignorance, in the, especially he says from the 10th uh, century onward, this prevailing ignorance, it is easy to produce abundant testimony. It is almost every council, excuse me, in almost every council, the ignorance of the clergy forms a subject for reproach. It is asserted by one held in, 19, in 992 AD, it is asserted by one that was held in 992 AD that scarcely a single person could be found in Rome itself who knew the first elements of letters. This was a very uh, illiterate group. Not one priest of a thousand in Spain about the age of Charlemagne could address a letter of common salutation to another. In England, Alfred declares that he could not recollect a single priest south of the Thames, that means the better part of England, best part of England, at the time of his accession, who understood the ordinary prayers or who could translate the Latin into the mother tongue. End quote. Add into the fact that the cost of the books, their inability to read, and the cost of the books made access to scripture almost a non-event. In his book, History of, the, of Charles V, one Dr. Robinson writes, quote, persons of the highest rank and in the most eminent stations could neither read nor write, and then he adds, private persons seldom possessed any books whatever. Even monasteries of considerable note only had one manuscript at best. The price of books became so high that persons of a moderate fortune could not afford to purchase them. The Countess Van Wu paid for a copy of the Amelies of Haman, Bishop of Ambersalt, 200 sheep, five quarts of wheat, and the same quantity of rye and millet. And so their, their point is, the result is there were few people who knew the word of God. And even if it was in the hands of the people, and the few copies that were in existence were mostly in libraries of monasteries and universities in the hands of some very elect people who could read. Add in that just preceding the Reformation, 
the popes of the Catholic Church and the papal powers, they opposed free circulation of the Bible from, I mean, 10 uh, year thousand on, did not want it uh, circulated. I'm not Bible, I'm not Catholic bashing here. This is just historical stuff. Um, we have a setting of at least 600 years where people did not know the Bible, I mean, at all, and p perhaps closer to 1,200 years after Christ, a period where it just was not known and uh, unfamiliar with the written word, um, at least the whole of it. So it's no wonder that people will read that this angel coming down with an open book will read that this is a, a fulfillment of the uh, Reformation when the Bible became, because of Gutenberg's printing press, became available to the whole world. And that's how this section is interpreted strongly by people who study it. But I can't help myself to point out that this opening of the Bible to the world also led to unfathomable suffering, <laughs> deaths of millions. It led to carnage. It, millions might be an exaggeration. De denominationalism, hatred, just it, so, which are things contrary to the spirit and the good news that I can't help but believe that the leaders of the Reformation were only partly correct in what they said about this Bible that was coming forward. When they said sola scriptura, I, I, just, I just wonder about, it's just like Erasmus said to Martin Luther, you say sola scriptura, you say sola scriptura, but that's only as long as I agree, agree with your interpretation of the scripture, Martin. They had a debate in letters back and forth to each other, and Erasmus stood for the Catholic faith and said, you're running off and saying sola scriptura to everybody, and everybody is killing each other over it because no one can really agree on what the opinions are. So Luther, your opinion of sola scriptura is as long as I agree with what you say, then sola scriptura is the rule at hand. But th that's a totally other side issue. The messenger has set foot on sea and land with a small open book in his hand, and I just gave you what the, what the reason why many interpret that to being the Bible coming out through Gutenberg and that fulfillment. And cried with a loud voice, verse 3, as when a lion roars, there's another uh, allusion to Christ. He is the king, the lion in the jungle roars, and he is called the lion in Scripture. And so there's another allusion to this is who it is. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Of course, the lion's the monarch of the jungle, the woods, and his roar is a, is a roar of authority. Boom, one foot, boom, another foot, boom. I have the, the book, uh, boom, I am roaring. Uh, because of the placement in this vision between the sixth and seventh seal, we can't tell if this is a roar of victory or if it was a roar, roar of warning or if chapter 10's events should come after the seventh seal is open and the seventh trumpet is blown. That's what makes Revelation, uh, Revelation difficult. Probably the roar was of judgments to come, but I have to admit this explanation seems incongru incongruent to a new kingdom being established. Um, you have to decide. So the lion's roar sets the tone for authority in the jungle. Any creature that hears it knows there's a force more powerful than they are and they they are reminded, so perhaps that's the meaning of this roar. We're not given an explanation by John of what it is. Uh, so it's impossible to determine. Uh, to determine, of course, tying it to the Reformation might be helpful, but I, th I see that as being 
useful and convenient, but not necessarily uh, uh, chronologically sound. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, there's a debate uh, among scholars on this because the article the is not there in verse 3. It should read, according to scholars, the seven thunders. Okay? If it was there, then we would read, and when he cried, the seven thunders uttered their voices. And if inserting the the article, uh, which the better Greek scholars have done, and no one can explain why the was removed, other than the fact that people think the was removed because no one knew what the seven thunders were. And to include the article the would give it as if it's something we all understood. The seven thunders spoke, but you take the article out and it says seven thunders. So, uh, so uh, seven thunders, there's no reason to understand what it is. The seven thunders, there is. Does anybody have a Bible in this room that uh, reads the seven thunders? Wow. One. What version is it? All right. And what about yours, John? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, but the seven thunders, um, there, yeah, yeah, well, that's, that, that's an assumption there uh, when they give you that, but we don't know. What's interesting is that in verse 3 and then up through verse 4, there's a question about the article relative to the seven thunders or seven thunders. So let me read you verse 3 and 4. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried, no article, seven thunders uttered their voices and then in verse four and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices i was about to write and i heard a voice from heaven saying to me seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not so in verse three we have no article in verse four we have an article and that's justifiable because verse four is referring to the seven thunders that were mentioned in verse three but uh this would be correct um but Scholars say the article should be in verse 3 and in verse 4. I know to us, we know we're not scholars, it's not that big of a deal, but there's something to consider. Were the seven thunders anything well-known or preeminent? Do we ever have in Scripture seven thunders uh, being uh, referenced? Never, never. Not even in um, the, uh, not the antilope, Logomania, the uh, apocryphal writings, no seven thunders. So the best editions of the New Testament retain the article in both places, and uh, there's really no reason why it would ever be removed except for convenience uh, and, and fear that we don't know what they are, so it should be. It's plain, however, that there uh, is no mention of them, and the reason for the article in verse 3 must refer to either some knowledge of what the seven thunders were to the people of that day and age. Perhaps it was the voices of the seven spirits of God, which John's Bible says that's what it is. And that makes sense. There were seven spirits, the seven thunders. Okay, let's jump and make that conclusion. I'm going to show you why that's going to be really tough to do in a minute. Um, and which is emblematic of the spirit of God. The seven spirits, as we discern from the first and second and third chapter of Revelation, is the spirit of God, the seven spirits going out through the world. And so to say that's what they were and just believe it 
is easy to do, but it's not necessarily correct. Perhaps it's just a reference to the perfect number, which is frequent in this book. We have seven spirits, we have seven angels, we have seven seals, we have seven trumpets. It's obvious. So it's the, full, it's the complete thunder spoke. Perhaps it represents the spirit of God itself, the Holy Spirit responding to the land. Perhaps it's the seven continents, uh, the angels speaking to the seven continents. That's been proposed. Uh, after all, he is standing with one foot in the ocean or in the sea and one foot on land. So the seven thunders are responding to his arrival. He's placed a foot and a foot and he has a book and he cries up to God and the seven voices respond back. Uh, verse 4 gives us some additional information to the seven thunders. Namely, there were voices that were communicating actual messages. So where we're reading thunders, they weren't thunders. They were voices that were speaking and John decides to call them thunder, okay? What happens next, there is the idea that the seven thunders had nothing to do with heaven at all. And why we say they are from heaven, maybe it's because it's thunders come from above, but some suggest that maybe in fact this was evil or darkness or an uproar or Satan and his demons responding to when he roared like a lion, the seven continents having the kingdom on earth roared up their answer in rebellion. That makes great sense when we think about it and you consider the next verse, which we'll do now. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, that means words that he was going to write, I was about to write, John says, and I heard a voice from heaven, okay, this is, he distinguishes there, say to me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. So if they were the spirit of God or with, if they were the seven spirits from God or the seven angels, they were saying something God does not want written in the book. So it seems questionable why would God have them give a message and then turn around and tell John don't include it. This is what lends to the idea that those seven thunders were maybe possibly not from heaven and were of voices that shouldn't be, whose opinions or attitudes or ideas should be included in the revelation. So John says, when I was about to record what was uttered, and from this we learn that John wrote down what he saw and heard in pictures and images. He, he was gonna write down what they uttered. That means he heard words, but he calls them thunders. You see, so remember, you don't have to exactly believe it was thunder. This is the way John was able to put things together. He says, and, and I, uh, he calls them the seven thunders, and from this evidence we know that we have to be careful when you assign literalism to symbolism and figure, figurative symbols that are used in the book because it's not, it's just John's way of saying things for us. In any case, John was going to record what he heard and perhaps saw and he was instructed to do he was remember he was instructed write what you see at the beginning of revelation write what you see but here he was just so he was following up what he saw and yet a voice from heaven comes and says don't do it right i said and i heard a voice from heaven saying unto me i think we can say because it came from heaven this was god certainly we can't say the thunders were but we certainly can say that this was and I heard the voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things and write them not. So it doesn't mean he wrote them and he said, seal them up. He says, 
Seal them up, which could mean something like, don't pay attention to them. Seal them from your mind. Don't write them at all. So seal and don't write. So he hadn't written them, okay? Um, this suggests so strongly to me that these voices of thunder were either not of heavenly origin, or if they were, it was information God just didn't want included in the revelation. Could have been. We have to give that. Um, but so as a result of us not being told that they were from heaven and that God told John, don't write them, don't even remember them, many scholars believe that these were, some say they were the Crusades. This is the voice landing, the kingdom coming on earth, and now we have the Crusades. I don't know how they come up with this stuff, but there were nine Crusades, so... Some, but maybe in your, I say this because maybe in your Bibles here at home or here, you might have, and these were the Crusades. But perhaps they were seven periods of time that have no bearing on the church or no, nothing to do with the end times that Revelation is providing. So God said, don't include this stuff. Maybe these were reiterations. And God is saying, this will be redundant. The seven thunders are giving us the seven seals again or the seven trumpets or the seven vials. Don't listen to that right now. You don't have to write it. It might be something as simple as that, rather it being devils responding to whatever Christ is bringing. Um, for every reader of Revelation, there's an opinion on what these seven thunders were. Uh, but just know that whatever they were, it does not say they were from heaven. John was going to write what they said and was told not to. That we, much we know. Uh, perhaps the next verse will give us some insight as to the tenor of these seven thunders and the angel, verse 5, which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven. So if you think about it, he lands, he has the book in his hand, he's straddling sea and land, he comes with a rainbow on his head, he rides in the clouds, he's a mighty angel, he has a roar of a lion. And as soon as he lands, John says, I hear seven voices come up. And his response, this angel, mighty angel's response is to lift up his hand to heaven. To me, that sounds like he is in competition with whatever is voicing their opinions, whatever is coming at him. That's what it sounds like to me. And Christ, not looking this way, looks this way, the mighty angel. And he looks to heaven. And he announces something as he raises his hand to heaven. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we know that the posturing of this angel, uh, the, the posturing of men in the Old Testament, when you raise a hand or hands to heaven, is um, petitioning, pleading with, asking for, or uh, asking for a witness from heaven. In, in Genesis 14, 21, Abraham said to king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord. I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord. And so we see today in many uh, churches that people when they pray or when they worship, they lift hands up. It's a, it's a noble biblical thing to do. They lift their hands to the Lord as if to say, help me. God, I'm a child, I'm here, feed me, save me, rescue me. And nothing wrong with it. We don't do it here just because it's cultural. I, I, I didn't learn to do that, and, but in the school of ministry I was in, we have people who did it, and it's very popular culturally. We don't do it when we pray and stuff, but if you want to, of course, people can. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, 40, it says, For I lift up my hand to heaven and, 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 and say and speak. 
Uh, Daniel 12, 7 says, And I heard a man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, and he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, and that, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be fulfilled. Some people believe that this is a fulfillment of Daniel uh, 12, 7, when Jesus lands, or the angel, whichever you want to believe it is, lands on earth and lifts his hand to heaven. That's a fulfillment of Daniel 12, 7. But the act of heaven, of raising hands, is definitely biblical. So this messenger has come, and he lifts up his hand to heaven, and this is what it says, verse 6. And swear by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which therein are, that there should be time no longer. Okay, and boy, that one gets glommed onto. Woo, time no longer. This is talking about way out in the future, guys. This could, I mean, we have time now. Clock's ticking. We all have time. We're not in that realm of the kingdom where God has no time or space and all that continuum stuff. So this is definitely futuristic. The angel has said time no longer, and we are, have never experienced that, right? So let me present several insights for whatever they're worth. I've made the case that this, is a messen this messenger is Jesus by the way he is described by John. Jesus has descended from the heavens uh, in this intermediary vision between the sixth trumpet being played out. We have chapter 10 and now the seventh, which is the big one, which is the end of everything, is coming next. So we have this little space here that John is giving us this extra vision. He raises his hand to heaven and swears. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, he gave a teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, you have heard that it has been said of them of old, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thy nose. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't swear. He says, he, then he goes on to talk about let your communications be yes and no, because everything else is evil. And yet we have this mighty angel who I last week spent the whole time describing why it's Jesus doing exactly what he told his apostles not to do. How? Why? Because he's able to do it now. He can swear by anything now. He's in that position and because he has overcome all things. And that's what Revelation has been describing to us. The one that sits on the throne takes in his right hand the book. He can now, when he comes back, he can do all things. The whole kingdom's been given to him. Who or what does he swear by? John tells us. He swear by him that liveth, ready, forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein. So in other words, Jesus here, the mighty angel, is swearing to God. He is swearing before God. The one and true and living God, creator of heaven and earth, that all things in them are. Now, that brings us to a little bit of a side question, and it's, I thought Jesus created all things. If he is on the earth and he has his foot on the land of the sea and he's swearing by him that created all things, and he's the mighty angel, if we're right on that, didn't he create all things? Why is he swearing by somebody above him at this point in the game? 
the second person of the Trinity. Why is the second person of the co-equal, co-eternal Trinity speaking to the Father as though he is the creator and not himself? Because scripture clearly says that Jesus created all things. We can't get around that. Let this example, one of hundreds of examples in the New Testament, serve to help us understand the one true God, one, one true God and his son whom he has sent. The one true God and his son who he has sent. There is one God, creator of all things, heaven and earth. A junior or a co-equal, co-eternal, co-authoritative God did not stand by him with his cousin, the co-equal, co-eternal Holy Spirit for eternity in the heavens. That three-person, one-God Trinitarian notion doesn't make sense to me in the way that I read these things. However, what does make sense is the one true God created all things. All things. How did he do it? Well, let's look at the creative example. What does it say? In the beginning, God said. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. So through his word, he spoke everything into existence. Through his word, and let me tell you something, the words of God are alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. They don't disappear. They weren't created. They've always been. They're his word. When God speaks, it's different than an idiot like me speaking. His word, there's, there's no variance in those things. They're perfect, right? So he speaks, and things come into being. And then we read, and his word was made flesh. And that is how he created all things by what Scripture in the New Testament calls Jesus. He created all things by his word, and his word became flesh and dwelled among us. Emmanuel, God with us, his word with us, walking about and teaching us, describing for us, he's the word of God, everything that we don't know about the invisible God. He's the word that's describing. He's the logos. He's the, the thoughts, the emotions, the, the great things, the deep things. He's all things. He's the fullness of God made manifest in the flesh. The one true God spoke, however that looks like. I'm not saying with vocal cords. I don't know how that works. String theorists say it's vibrations. Who knows? And all things were created by his word. He spake, right? And that word... That was the one true, that the one true God spoke. The very words came into existence and dwelt among us in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who Peter and Paul always call him in the book of Acts. Never uh, Jesus, the son of God, or God, the second person of the Trinity. Always they refer to him when speaking to the Jews and Gentiles, the man, Jesus, in whom the fullness of God dwelled. Were those words eternal that, that were in Christ Jesus that became flesh? Of course they were. Were they created? No, they were not created words. Um, the words of God are God himself. Was the fleshly man of Jesus of Nazareth created? Of course he was. Scripture says he was made, fashioned, a little lower than the angels. We get all hinkied up when we start messing with that, but this stuff rings true. And so when we have Jesus... 
in the flesh, the mighty angel coming down, the messenger, Angelos, and lifting his hand, it's one hand, sorry, lifting his hand to the heaven to him who created all things. There's no disparity there. There's no problem there. It's very easy to understand. Overcoming the flesh and sin and, and, and everything else, Jesus of Nazareth, God with us in human flesh, returned to his Father, and Jesus of Nazareth, as the book of Revelation has pointed out, takes that throne. He's the one who has a hand and takes a book. He's the one who's there, our mediator, forever and ever and ever. He is our head. He is our God, the fullness of God in him. He is the one on the one throne, fully them, fully them. All right. To wrap things up from that age, he was coming back to establish his kingdom. Chapter 10 is telling us what he's bringing. When we get to verse 7, it might open up for you, okay? This is what I believe John is witnessing here. Jesus coming from heaven, our mediator of Nazareth, now wholly glorified. Cloud around his head. I mean, a rainbow around his head. Clouds at his feet coming, one foot over land and sea. And he roars like a lion, and he has in his hand a book for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's a little book, and he swears to God, by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and things that are therein, and the earth and the things that in them are, and the sea and the things that in them are. And what does he swear in this vision that John sees? That there should be time no longer. And uh, of course, I, I led into the fact that people make a huge deal of that. I would suggest this is speaking of the time for the end of all things is no more. We are about to enter into the seventh trumpet. That is the end. That's the wrapping up of everything. So he says the time for the end uh, is no longer. I mean, excuse me. There should be time no longer for between now and the end. It's here. When Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, they said, when will these things happen? And he says, oh, look for all these signs and look for all this to happen. We have been looking at all that unfolding with the, uh, the uh, seals and the trumpets. One, two, three, four, five, six. And the trumpets are now between six and seven. And he says, and then he stands here, the time, there's no more time, but this is it, right? That's why the vision was given here. We're about to enter into the seventh trumpet which is the most horrific stuff unleashed upon uh, the people of uh, Israel. So no more warnings, no more revelations. The wrapping up of everything that he has warned about is here, which are described in the seventh seal, verse 7. But, okay, so he says that there should be time no longer, the next words. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel which is coming next, okay? So what's coming next? When he, that seventh angel, shall begin to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. That passage is so Old Testament driven. We don't have prophets right now that are declaring what the mystery of God needs to be finished. This is a direct 
response to everything of the Old Testament being fulfilled there upon the nation of Israel at that time. Are you able to put all of this into a reasonable chronology? I hope so. It's right here. Let's read it again with verse 6. And swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein and earth and the things that are there are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, which we are going to start reading about in chapter 11, he was coming with the seventh trumpet, when he shall begin to sound, doo, 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 here's the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God should be finished. The mystery of God should be finished. What's the mystery of God? Do you know? Paul tells us. He clearly tells us what the mystery of God is. And here he says it's finished. When that seventh angel trumps, as he has declared to his servants, the prophets would come. So what we have is an Old Testament ideation of prophets are saying there's a mystery. We don't even know what it is. It's coming our way. We can't even tell you what God's going to do with it. We know some things are going to happen. What's the mystery? And so in the, we get into the New Testament, and Paul writes of this mystery. And he starts unveiling it for us, this mystery. And so let's talk about it. Remember Jesus said in Luke 16, 16, we're going to wrap it up with this. The law and the prophets, the prophets... Here, the uh, angel says, uh, Jesus says, which he has declared to his servants, the prophets, this mystery is going to be finished. He, but, John, but Jesus said to, uh, in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John, the Baptist. Until. Then they're done. See, law and the prophets were till John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. So we have Old Testament prophets preaching of a mystery, and Jesus comes and he says, listen, the law and the prophets were up until John the Baptist. And since that time, the kingdom of, of heaven is starting to rain down upon you, and people are pressing into it, right? And of course, we read in the book of Hebrews, not uh, it, it, when we studied it, in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, it says, spoken unto us by his son. These last days, at that time, the writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken to us by his son. Again, showing that the prophets were over. He is now speaking to us by his son, which we have happening here in chapter 10, when the mighty messenger lifts his hand and says, hey, I am swearing by God that the mystery of God is over, that the prophets have been talking about forever. We know from this verse that the mystery of God was to be accomplished at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which is starting to come in the next chapter, at Revelation 11, verse 15, and which will herald in a new age, a brand new, completely shaken down, beautiful age. And that is the age of the spirit. That is the age of love. That is the age of an invisible kingdom, which people flow into and are part of. There are members of the kingdom here. There are members of the ki kingdom in Korea. There are members of the kingdom in all the different churches. And that is what this age is. It's not about the material church. It's about this age, right? John told us that the finishing of the mystery of God had been foretold of by his servants, the prophets, in other words, for a long time, the prophets had been looking forward to what John was about to witness. 
the expression, the mystery of God, should ring a bell to anyone who's familiar with the writings of Paul. He speaks of the mystery in Romans 16. He speaks of the mystery in Romans 11. But he extensively covers the topic of the mystery of God that this angel is saying is, a, is going to be done with, finished, in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 5, and 6, and Colossians 1, 2, and 4, extensively about this mystery. But let me get really specific with you so there's no doubt to you what it is. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, 4, 5 that they could perceive his insight into the mystery of God, which was, excuse me, that they would have the ability to perceive what this mystery of God was, which had not been made known to the prophets before. Okay? So Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 4, 5, listen, it wasn't revealed back then, but it's being revealed now. But in Ephesians 3, 6, Paul explicitly defines this mystery, and this definition is most crucial to our understanding of Revelation 10, 7, and then what the book is all about. Ready to know the mystery that has long been spoken of by the prophets? Are you ready? Let me tell you, this was a mystery in the Jews' age. They could not comprehend it, so much so that they killed Christ, and they killed all of his apostles, and they killed Paul who thought differently. Paul tells us what the ministry is. Ready? This mystery is, this is a quote, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's a quote. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus in the same gospel. When you hear that, you say, why is that a big mystery? Because the Jews could not comprehend it. And we have a wrapping up of their age here with Revelation. And we have the angel coming down, a mighty angel, stepping on the river, stepping on the water, stepping on the land, lifting up his hands, saying, I swear before God, this mystery is finished. It's done. Because now the gospel is out for everybody. When could that happen, according to Hebrews and other books? It could happen only when the law and the prophets and the temple and the priesthood was destroyed. That's when it could happen. As long as vestiges of that remained, it could never fully go to the Gentiles. And so Paul tells us, listen, the mystery is that the Gentiles are our fellow heirs and that you say, no way. It was dividing churches right and left. There's just no way. And yet that was the mystery talking about. In the previous chapter, Paul has given some hints to what the mystery would contain, saying that Jesus had already broken down the wall of division between us. Do you remember Paul saying that? That's what, this is before he reveals to us what the ministry is. He's broken the wall down. There used to be a wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. The Jew would, would understand what that language was. That's Ephesians 2, 14, 15. He also taught that they were all joined together into a holy temple of the Lord. This was being taught by Paul back then. And that we were built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. We were built together as a habitation of God in the Spirit. That is a kingdom that's invisible. That has nothing to do with separate denominations and Jews and Gentiles and all this stuff. Nothing. It's a different kingdom. In Jesus, there is no difference, no favoritism, no distinction between bond, free, male, female, 
Jews, non-Jews, none. And that's why it's laughable to me when people go back to Paul's writings in the New Testament that women shouldn't speak in church. Come on, wake up. That was obliterated when Christ came and said, look, at the mystery is done, as spoken of by the prophets forever. And he has the law in his hand, the law of love. It has to be, it's one page. It's a book that's so small. That's all that's needed. Maybe the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, there it is. And the rest of it is gone. It's so beautiful, I'm so glad we studied this book because man, it has opened me up to the things I have been believing and not knowing why and seeing and unfolding. Ask yourselves, in your opinion, has that mystery come to fruition? Are the Gentiles in the position to receive the fullness of God? All right. So all are one in Christ today, and we are, uh, or are we are still waiting. We're still waiting for this to be fulfilled, you know. And that's what people are saying. When the Bible finally became available and open to all, then the mystery began to be unfulfilled and the Gentiles could believe. It's, it was, it's so anachronistic, it doesn't make sense. Now listen to verse 7 again, which John sees the messenger deliver. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, which we're about to read of next chapter, with the seventh trumpet, when he shall begin to sound... When that seventh trumpet comes, the mystery of God should be finished. It's done. As he hath declared to his servants, as God has declared to his servants, the prophets. What this tells us is that if the mystery is finished, it was finished in association with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Meaning that the trumpet had to have sounded in order for all of us to be one with Christ today for that mystery to be finished. And that should be revelatory to those of you who are trying to understand what is going on here uh, relative to the nation of Israel and the chronology of the book of Revelation. All right, we'll stop there, Q&A, and whew, go from there. Thank you. Questions, comments? All right, let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the application of, of these words to us. Lord, I teach openly before you. Honestly. Lord, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Her alcohol <laughs> okay. Lord, help us to understand these things. And uh, forgive me, but help us to see them in terms of what has been so we aren't trapped by traditions and fears that are no longer applicable. That if you came down and the mystery was finished, that the seventh seal was finished too, as spoken of by your prophets, and that we are in that kingdom, which is spiritual and that the modus operandi of that kingdom is love. It's not religion, it's, it's, it's love. Agape love from on high. Not wishy-washy love, your love, which is patient and kind and long-suffering and all the things 
and all the ways that love is described in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians 13. Help us to exit here and to take these messages uh, to heart if they're right and to be better Christians known for our love. And we pray for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now!